Okay, we're in the book of Esther. If you wanna, if you wanna turn there, we're going through the book of Esther and we're looking at it in, uh, under this kind of theme of when God is visibly invisible. Those times when through your life, a season, a season you might be in when you just have a hard time seeing where God is. He doesn't seem like he's doing anything. Those seasons when it doesn't seem like he's answering your prayer or things aren't working out. And you know he's there because he's everywhere. You know all the right answers, but it just seems like he's invisible. So we're, we're calling it that because Esther is one of those books where the storyline kind of leads you to believe, you know, where is he? You think he'd show up here, he doesn't. You think he'd show up here, and he doesn't, not in ways that we're looking for anyway. In the book of Esther, you know, as, I, as I've been saying, you don't even find the name of God in the book of Esther. He's that invisible, and yet he's incredibly visible as, as we go through it and as we, as we keep going through it. We saw in, in chapter 1, uh, you know, a chapter that really didn't pertain to God's people. It was about a king who had an who had this over-the-top party, and then because he couldn't show off his wife to all of his drunken friends, he got so angry and, and booted her off the throne and just got rid of her. So, you know, that sense of, okay, where is God in the midst of things that are just so wrong? They don't really affect me, but they're wrong. And then in chapter 2, where we came back around and we saw this whole chapter 1, where is, where is God when it's hard to find him? And in chapter 2, we kind of looked at the, from the angle that sometimes the mercy you get isn't the mercy that you want. And so he has this huge gathering of all these beautiful teenage girls, probably from all over his empire, come in for a beauty and body contest and, and chooses a new queen. And she gets this incredible mercy. Esther becomes the new queen, but that is not at all what she would have written in her life plan. And so sometimes the mercy God shows you isn't, the way he answers your prayer isn't the way you're looking for him to answer prayer. The mercy that you get is not the mercy that you want. The favor, like in the book of Joseph, in the story of Joseph, the favor you get isn't the favor you, you really are looking for. And then last week, at the end of chapter 2, there's this little moment in, in the story then where Mordecai, Esther's uncle, is in this place, and he hears about a threat on the king, and you find out that, boy, when God is visibly invisible, he may have you right where he needs you. So if you can just stay put, you know, if you can stay in that place, if you can allow him just to let things unfold. We read out of Revelation where he says to the, all those martyrs who just wonder, God, how long until you pay back? And he says to them, wait a little longer. So if you can stay put. So this morning we're in, we're in Esther chapter 3 where the story starts to ramp up a little bit. Esther is one of those stories that takes a, long, takes a while to get started. It has a slow start, but then once it gets going... It has an incredibly fast-paced story. So let me read ex, uh, Esther chapter 3 to you. <clears throat> After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage, and then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Now, the last time we saw that phrase was when, uh, was when the king was about to get rid of his wife. 
when she wouldn't come out and perform for all of his drunken friends. He's filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of, of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, so you're five years after chapter two. So in the, in the uh, anybody know where I was? In the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, yeah. <laughs> they cast poor, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are very different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, so they may put it in the king's treasuries. I was doing some calculating, or actually Siri was doing some calculating for me. That's around $250 million that he's offering to pay. Probably with, with what he'll take from the Jews when they're killed. So in verse 10, the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, to the governors over all the provinces, to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by courier to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out and hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in, citadel the, the, in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So you have five years where things seem normal, they seem okay. Esther's queen, Mordecai is a government official, he's sitting at the gate where all of the legal and all the legal government things were done, criminal things were done, property things were done, all at the gate. Five years, and then just so happens this one man, Haman, gets promoted. In fact, it's interesting, it, he's not just promoted, it says in verse one that he's promoted, he's advanced, and he's set on a throne. So he's put in this, in this place. I want to look at this, uh, at this chapter from Mordecai's point of view, although there's like three layers that we need to look at the chapter on for, for his sake, which is very personal to us, things that we need to take away, but then you get a bigger scope of what, what God is doing in these times when we're not sure what he's doing. Mordecai takes a stand, and taking a stand always has consequences. Sometimes they're inconsequential they don't really matter sometimes you're going to take a stand and it might take might change your whole life the stand you take the convictions that you have the convictions that you develop the convictions you develop maybe from what you hear in the word or what you read in the word for yourself what the spirit says to you 
This is time for you to, to deal with this. Some of you that are listening today, you may know what God is telling you to take a stand about. You may know that there's a line that he's trying to get you to draw or to draw back from. Others of you, you may, you may know what that is and you're resisting that. You may have taken a stand and, and God in his timing has you in this passage to affirm that, to be encouraged by that. So there's these times, they always have consequences, just like Mordecai's does. Sometimes you just have to take that stand. So here's Mordecai in verse 2. Everybody, everybody is bowing to the king. And so they get into, why is this? I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Why wouldn't Mordecai do this? But somebody pointed out, you know, the Persian culture is a very, it's a culture of shame and honor. Uh, I was reading something this morning uh, in my quiet time, I spent some time with the, about the persecuted church, and they talk about this, this country. Uh, I was trying to think what it was we were praying for. It wasn't one of the stands, but it's, it's above Iran. It's a culture of shame and honor, they said still. In a culture of shame and honor, everybody knows how to react. Everybody knows what to do. You know, if this person o is over you, you have to treat them with respect. I'm in the last season of uh, The Man in the High Castle, any man in high castle people with me? Okay, do not spoil that for me. <laughs> so I'm in the last car. But in the Pacific, the story behind the man in high castle is that, the, is that we lost World War II and that the Germans occupy the east part, eastern part of the U.S. and the Japanese occupy the west coast. And so in the Pacific states, as they're called, you see this culture of honor all the time whenever a Japanese official uh, comes into a place, if, the higher, if he's higher than you, you bow. You bow. You just automatically do that. The Persians would get that. So they point out it's really significant that in verse 2 when it tells you the king's servants, they bow down and they paid homage, they would, you would naturally expect that. So something is up when it tells you for the king had commanded concerning him. There's just something that should get your attention when it says that. It's like if Somebody's promoted over you at work, and they're, they're the new manager, or they're the new director, or they're your new supervisor, and you get an email about that, that, hey, Elizabeth is the new manager of this office. Please show her respect. That would only be in there if somebody was worried that, that no one was going to show respect. So it's, it seems like it's only in here because nobody's bound to him unless they're told to bow to him. So that might be some of what's up. That's what some of the, th some of the writers say. Maybe, maybe Mordecai doesn't bow because he doesn't feel like Haman doesn't deserve it. I doubt it. I don't even think Haman doesn't bow because he's Jewish. I think there's, there's more to it than that. And we'll get to that in a second. But it's just a moment for Mordecai when he realizes he has to take a stand here. He has to take a stand by keep standing that there's this moment you come to when you realize, wow, this is one that I can't back away from. We have to be careful of that, that we don't negotiate away convictions we have to try to get out of a moment. And we've all done that. Oh, man, I need to say something. I need to stop doing this. I need to start doing this. But I'll just do it this time. I'm not going to do it. I haven't really thought it out. I'm not really ready. I don't think it's my time. All of those things we do to negotiate our way out of those things when Clearly, you know, if you're having that kind of wrestling, you know that God is calling you to take a stand or he's calling you to hold on to a conviction or to be articulate, to put a conviction out there. You think about it, our faith is a faith of nonconformists. I mean, Daniel gets taken to Babylon and they say, this is what you're going to do. And Daniel says, you know what, I can't do that. 
He does it respectfully. He honors the authorities, but he just doesn't conform to everything they want him to conform to. Moses is brought up in, in Pharaoh's household, but Hebrews tells you that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused to become Egyptian because he knew who he was. And so he wouldn't conform to what they wanted him to conform to. The Apostle Paul, all his life, had been this Pharisee, a well-known Pharisee, but he got to a point where he had to take a stand and say, that's not who I am anymore. You know, I'm a follower of Jesus now. That I can't go back there, and I can't fit that mold. In fact, isn't that what the Scripture tells us in Romans 12? Don't let the world con you know, conform you into its image. There's a Phillips paraphrase. says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Isn't Jesus the most nonconformist person we know? Wasn't he, you read the Gospels, isn't he constantly blowing people's minds by what he said? You've always heard this, but this is what I say to you. Or by the things he, d he did, why are your disciples eating on, on the Sabbath? Why are you healing on the Sabbath? Why are you doing this? To the point, you know, I'm in, I'm in Mark 3 in my quiet time this morning. In Mark 3, they're already talking about killing him. It just caught my attention that they just were tired of him not fitting in right away. Sometimes you just have to take that stand. You know, and that's where, that's where my burden is, that if you know this is that time, then you need to receive this, that while God was suddenly not invisible to you, he showed up and affirmed, take that stand. But sometimes that, those stands, they're tied to who you are, which is what happens, I think, with, with Mordecai and Haman, what's going on. I don't think it's because he's Jewish and he won't bow down. I think he, he would get that this is culture. I think what goes on is why we get some details and we don't get other details. When it tells you about Haman, it says, Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. It doesn't tell us anything about the family of any, other, any one of the king's uh, rulers. And we met a bunch of them in chapter 1. We met all these guys with the names we couldn't pronounce, but we didn't find anything about their family. And we won't find out about anybody else's except Haman, the Agagite. In fact, it's interesting, over in chapter 2, when it introduced us to Mordecai, it told you that Mordecai was the son of Jer, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Okay, that's interesting. Except that you have to know that the Agagites and the sons of Benjamin, they have a history. And that's probably what's going on, what's going on in, in Mordecai's mind when this Agagite gets promoted. Agag was a man who was part of this tribe known as the Amalekites, which you might have heard of. When Israel was on the exodus from Egypt up to the Promised Land, the Amalekites made their land miserable, made their lives miserable. They just attacked them, wouldn't let them come through their land. And so when they're getting ready to go into the Promised Land, and God is kind of going over the law again, Deuteronomy is his kind of re-going over the law and giving them some instructions for going into the Promised Land. This is what God says to them. He says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt and how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail and those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. Yeah, the Amalekites came up on the, the backside of Israel and just were, were killing people, taking them down. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. You shall, you shall deliver God's judgment on, the, on people. And granted, when you're talking to, to people about Jesus in these days, that's a harder one for us to understand the wrath of God. 
Right? We understand that he's holy. We understand he's just. We understand he's loving. We understand he's mercy. His wrath can be hard to get around. His wrath is the place where sometimes you just need to sit down on the verse where he says, your ways aren't my ways, and you, you know your thoughts aren't my thoughts. They're higher than yours. And just bow and say, God, you're God, and you're good, and you do what's right. And so there was just divine judgment that was called on for, for uh, on the Amalekites. And so God waits for that. And so you go through the time of the, when Israel is ruled by judges, and then they want a king. And so God appoints a, a king, and he is the son of Kish. He's a Benjaminite, and his name is Saul. It's interesting that his name is not mentioned in chapter 2, but his father is. So you have the son of Kish, whose distant descendant is going to be Mordecai. You have the son of Kish, Saul, who becomes the first king of Israel. And along the way, God says to him, okay, Saul, it's now time to, in, to inflict that judgment on the Amalekites. You're to go and you're to wipe them out. Don't take any plunder because this is judgment. This is not invading army. It's judgment. And so they do. They go in and they kill they kill everybody. They kill, you know, as they're supposed to. But he keeps the king alive. And the king's name is Agag. Are you beginning to follow the story thread here to how hundreds of years later that might become an issue? And so he keeps Agag alive. And so God is, is upset with him and says, Saul, Saul, what have you done? He sends Samuel. And Samuel says, what have you done here? He says, oh, oh, we killed everybody. And he says, well, what? what's all the sound of animals that I hear? And Saul does what we all do. He says, oh, well, the people, the other people, they wanted, they wanted the animals. Not me, not me. You know, I mean, that's where the original, <laughs> the original, that, yeah, not me, them, started. And so God says to Saul, because you haven't done this, I'm taking the kingdom away from you. And that's how we end up with King David and not King Jonathan, the, the son of Saul. But you have that that goes on. A, he, Samuel will kill Agag in front of them, but then later in Chronicles, we find out there's still some Amalekites left. And one of those Amalekites who will be left eventually will become named Haman. And so you have the son of Agag and you have the son of Kish in the same court. And now the son of Kish is being told to bow to the son of Agag. And I think that's what's behind here. I just can't do that. I cannot bow before a people that God said should have been annihilated. So the fact that it's not enough for Haman when it says um, in verse 6, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Haman would know the history and would know, why should I get rid of one Jew when I can do to them what they try to do to us? See, sometimes you take a, taking a stand is tied to who you are. That's what's going on in this passage. Mordecai, he's a Jew. And he's a Jew who has a history. And even though they're, in, they're not in their homeland because they were disobedient to God, he's still a Jew now. And he still knows this. And so he still, ha he still on is honoring that. This is a people that God has put judgment on. I'm not bowing to him. It's tied to who you are. It's tied in that way. We still have that today. We still have feelings between... Iraqis and Iranians, don't we, because of the war they went through between Serbs and Bosnians, between, boy, Hutus and Tutsis. They went through a tremendous reconciliation process, but there's still going to be some things, Turks and Armenians. They're still very much in our culture. Josh, when we became friends with so many Asian cultures, found out there's still 
killing Koreans towards Japanese for World War II. We still, that's what, isn't that the heart of our racial issue here in America? Having lived in the South, I can tell you that the North-South is very real to Southerners. So you have those things that just last and last and last. And here's, Mo here's Mordecai making, making, uh, making a stand on it. You know, if we cut out to a side note, isn't there an application here that if you don't deal with what God says to deal with now, you will deal with it bigger and badder later? Because that's what's happening, isn't it? You didn't deal with this when I told you to deal with it, and it doesn't go away. Hey, I can tell you as someone committed to that philosophy, if you ignore it, it will go away. That, that never works. That never really works. In the, in the premarital material I use, the, the couple has a line that uh, buried emotions have a high rate of resurrection. Which all of us that are married, especially all of us husbands that are married, have found out is true. You can't bury things without them coming back. If God is telling you to deal with something, he knows this is the time. He knows you can do it because he knows he can do it through you. And so the best thing for you to do is do that. You know, maybe, maybe you're here and you've thought about going to road recovery and you haven't and whatever. This is the moment when God's telling you, deal with this now. Don't, do not wait for this to get bigger and badder because here we have bigger and badder and so we have the book of Esther. This whole storyline is going to be driven by this, you know, where we are today and we're going we're to leave things hanging today really at the end of where we end up finishing the message. But sometimes it's just a matter of who you are. You're going to have convictions because of who you are as a follower of Jesus that are going to make people uncomfortable. No matter how gracious you try to be, your convictions are just going to make people uncomfortable. Hey, I'm a Christian, and so I have a biblical understanding of what marriage is, that it's, it's a covenant between a man and a woman. So now all of a sudden I become a hater, which is far from who I am. It's just it's what the culture says who we are. But you just, because of who you are, you have these convictions. Do you have a conviction about life? I have a conviction about the purpose of life. I, you know, we have these convictions of what's right, what's wrong, where the line is because we're Christians, because we're followers of Jesus. You have convictions you didn't have before you were a parent. You have convictions you, you, know, you have if you're in a relationship or not in a relationship. They're, your convictions will sometimes just be tied to who you are and to where you are in life, just like they were for him. Some convictions will become, uh, some convictions will become public, some are just personal. You'll have personal convictions. You'll take stands that are just personal. What you watch on TV, what movies you won't watch. What, what parent of teenagers didn't go through that phase of, why can't I watch this movie? They watch this movie, and they're a good Christian family. <laughs> Didn't you love that one? I always wondered about that because I thought, yeah, and I'm that family's pastor, so if my son tells them, so you've got to navigate this one carefully. We just said, hey, we're not saying anything about that family. We're just saying this is what our family this is where our lines are. This is where we're taking stands on what we'll watch, you know, what we won't watch, what we'll do, where we won't, you know, what we, where we'll go, where we won't go, what we'll eat or drink, what we won't eat or drink. Those are personal stands you take. And, and if you're somewhere with people, you can take those very graciously. But sometimes stands have to be made public like this. You know, it was very obvious in time that Mordecai was still standing. Haman wouldn't have noticed that because, like I said, the gate was a really busy place. It was crowded. So he could be standing, and there's enough people around that, that Haman never noticed until they tell him, which we'll get to in a second. 
Sometimes there's places you've got to take a, a public stand. They're talking about something in the office that's just wrong or in the shop that's just wrong. And they say to you, right? And that's time to take a stand. Yeah, not exactly. You know, or you agree with that, don't you? You agree with that, don't you? That was the, hey, I didn't check this one with Cindy. Usually I check all my things with Cindy. But, but we had this thing with the, the kids. Sometimes we got into this thing where we'd be talking about something and doing something, and Cindy would be talking to them about this is what she thought. And, and the key thing of parents is to be together. you got to be together. So she would say something, and then she'd say something. I think, hmm, not sure. I'm not done there. So, right, Dad? <laughs> and, they, hey, the right answer is yes. <laughs> really, I'm, as a parent, I'm telling you, it's always yes in front of the kids. And then you have that conversation privately. And we did at one point where you had to say, hey, listen, you're putting me on the spot sometimes when you're, you, you, you know, you were thinking out loud and you say this and then you say, right, Dad. Because sometimes, I, you know, it's not wrong, you know. <laughs> but I'm not going to do that. So then the kids caught on to that. And even still, even still, Josh will say that sometimes. We'll be Cindy will be talking and she'll say something. He'll, he'll just go, right, Dad? You know. <laughs> You get those moments, it's got to be public. I was reading an article a number of years ago uh, about a, a Christian leader in the Chicago area that was invited to, you know, how can we impact the city of Chicago, all these ministries, all these religions. And so he went, and uh, they became a pep rally for, we can all do this together because we all believe the same thing. And at the end of it, it that's what it was. We can do the same thing, and everybody stands up and applauding except him and one other person. Because that's a stand he, he couldn't he couldn't stand he couldn't stand no when we don't all believe the same thing. You know who else didn't stand? The Muslim cleric. Because he gets that no we're not we're, we're not all believing the same thing here. In fact, they had a conversation afterwards in which they, you know they they just honored that each other that we think I think you're wrong you think I'm wrong. Hey, but I respect you for staying seated in that moment. Sometimes that stand has to become public. That's why the scriptures say to us, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. In our culture, there is no gentleness and respect. So you can just be countercultural by being respectful and by being gentle with people when you take that public stand. Some stands, uh, I don't think I, yeah, I'm going to come back. I didn't add this slide because I saw it along the way. Some, some stands you take, they're going to stir people up. And people are going to stir things up because that's what's happened. In verse 3, the king's servants, who were also at the gate, they said, why do you transgress the king's command? Why aren't you doing this? And so in verse 4, they spoke to him day after day. Are you kidding me, Mordecai? You're going to keep, how long are you going to keep this up? Why are you doing this? You think you're going to get away with this? And so it says he wouldn't listen to them. They told Haman. Sometimes when you take a stand, there's going to be someone that just wants to stir it up, and they're going to tell. And so they told Haman. They just want to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, whether what Mordecai says is going to hold up. They say that these words, that whether the words would stand, that's a legal concept, that Mordecai felt like he had a legal right that gave him the right not to kneel or not to bow or not to pay homage to him. So they want to see, okay, well, let's, let's get this on the burner and let's see whether his, his legal right is going to hold. Do you have a right to do this? When you take a stand, you just have to know that someone is going to take that and try to stir it up. 
And you have to be okay with doing that anyway because it's about the stand. It's about your convictions. You know, convictions are just things that we believe that are true, that are right, or that have value. I was thinking about that when I wrote that down. You know what I thought of was Root One. I thought of the Root One ministry. You know, we pray for that. You know, we encourage Lori. We get encouraged by what happens because we believe that women who are being trafficked are valued. We still have value. That's so that's a conviction. That we believe that, that the unborn, they have value and, and that there's truth there, that, that there are lies. So your convictions come out of things that you believe are true and right and have value. And so whether people spread that or not, that's just going to make your life more complicated. It shouldn't affect what your conviction is. You're just getting a, you're kind of getting a test case of what happens when you take a stand. What often happens is that sometimes the stands you take has, have bigger consequences than you think or than, that even make sense. This chapter does not make sense. One guy refuses to bow to a man who's received this incredible promotion and now he wants to exterminate his, his race. He wants to do genocide because one man won't bow to him. That makes no sense. But sometimes the consequences, they don't make sense. They're going to unroll and they're going to come, but they sure don't make sense. You, you know, we could talk about consequences. We could say, if you stand, take a stand for Jesus, you might lose your job. You might, but more than likely, we're talking about you probably, you might lose some friends with stands that you'll take. Some of you, when you came to Jesus and you changed your life the way you had to change your life, you did lose friends. And we've all heard Pastor Ted talk about that part of his story you're going to lose friends because they don't, they don't want to be around someone that makes them feel guilty or someone whose life is totally different than theirs anymore. It's going to affect your finances, stands that you take and convictions that you have. They're going to affect the way you use your finances and affect your lifestyle and those kinds of things. They're going to have bigger consequences. Family might be upset. Hey, for our brothers and sisters in the Muslim world, coming to Jesus, taking that stand has huge consequences for them. And so it, it plays out for them. You see it in verse 6 when you know, we read, he, he didn't want to just kill Mordecai alone. He sought to destroy all the Jews. But then when he writes this letter in verse 13, the instructions to destroy and kill, normally in, in the culture, you'd have two ways of saying something. So the fact that you have now three, that calls attention to this. I want you to destroy, kill, and annihilate. Are you getting my drift? All the Jews. So in their mind, automatically men. But I want you to make sure, young and old, and I want to make sure you miss, you don't miss that I'm thinking women and children. That we're not just punishing a nation. We're, we're looking for genocide. That's where he goes. And that the consequences can be really close to him because who's the one person he knows who he has told not to let anyone know she's Jewish? That's Esther. If she's in that palace and nobody knows she's Jewish, we've seen it a couple of times through the letter. He, uh, Mordecai commands her, don't let anyone know you're Jewish. Then twice in chapter two, you just stay under the radar. But that's going to come out because of him now that, hey, isn't he your uncle? Yeah, wait a minute. So if he's Jewish and he's your uncle and she's in a harem filled with jealous girls. So, so the consequences of his stand they're going to be bigger and wider than he would have thought, and they're going, to be, they're going to be closer to home than he would have thought. But it's a stand. A stand is a stand is a stand. 
no matter the consequences. You, you take that stand well, and then the consequences fall on God. That was something that in my internship, my home pastor, drilled into me. You do God's will, and the consequences are on him. I mean, that's, that's a great line. In fact, there was a little plaque we had when we were first married that said that. But boy, you're in Nigeria, and you, you follow the will of God, and you end up a widow? That's, that's where that, those consequences can be bigger than you think. But they're still worthwhile. Those consequences that can, will kill some of those. Sometimes those consequences just kind of snowball like they do here. But you still have to do what's right. So you stand on your convictions and you wait for God to act. And God doesn't do anything in this chapter. He, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't... Uh, he doesn't back him for not bowing. He doesn't stop the gossip at the gate. He doesn't chill Haman. He doesn't wake the king up. The Persian law was that you couldn't execute anybody without two witnesses. And Haman doesn't even tell the king who he's talking about. Do you notice that when he talks to the king in verse 8? He says, there's a certain people. And I'm not going to name them, but there's just some people out there. So he's very vague. He starts off you know, with the truth. They're scattered abroad and dispersed. And then uh, he moves to something that's kind of marginal. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And then he just outright lies, and they don't keep the king's laws. So it's not to your profit to keep them around. So he doesn't wake up the king in the course of this. At the end of the chapter, the king and Haman are having a drink. So he doesn't step in there. He doesn't stop this letter from going out. He doesn't interrupt the, all these couriers that are going out. He doesn't show up anywhere. So you're in Esther again, wondering, God, where are you? This is a pretty big moment for you to show up. Now, if you're, if you're a Jewish reader, you picked up on this one important detail in this chapter that we, we wouldn't get because we're not Jewish. But if I told you that these couriers, this letter was written on July 4th, that might ring something for you. So do you notice it says in verse 7, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, Okay, that's interesting. And then in verse 12, the king's scribe were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. That's really interesting because the 14th day of the first month is Passover. Now, Passover is this Jewish festival that reminds them of a time when an evil king tried to wipe them out. Wasn't that interesting? You get this letter. Wherever you're living in the kingdom, you get this letter written on Passover Eve that's telling you, you're going to be annihilated. And there's this reminder that, well, the last time this was going to happen, God stepped, stepped in and did something miraculous. So sometimes he may not be showing up in the way, we're back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, aren't we? He doesn't, may not be showing up in the way you're looking for him or where you're looking for him, but he's there. Sometimes he's under the radar, but he's there. And he's very aware, and he's guiding things. The Persians were huge believers in fate, which is why they throw the, the, uh, the they cast the pure, they, that is the lot. They're spinning to see what's the best date for this to happen. What's, what's the lucky date for this to happen? And so they cast it day after day. They're trying to find what day. And then they cast it month after month. They try to find what month. And so the, the lot tells them that a year from now is the best time to annihilate the Jews. Because that would be good for Haman to go to the king with. Hey, we cast the poor, and this is what it told us. The poor, one place I read said it would be like a pot that they'd put these pebbles in, or they'd put these 
broken pieces of pottery in, and they just shake it, and the first one's out was how they'd read what, what was lucky. So we go to the king, hey, we found out this is a lucky day for this to happen. Are we good to go? But Proverbs says, men cast the lot, but God decides the outcome. And so here we are in the book of Esther where, where we find that. As I said, we're going we're gonna to freeze, kind of freeze frame the moment in that and, and take a step back because I said there's a couple layers that, that we wanted to, to look at in this. More, the book of Esther isn't the story of Mordecai. It's not, what does God do for Mordecai? How does God rescue Mordecai? There's something bigger going on. Remember, we, we talked about this going through the book, that, that every story is part of God's story. That your story isn't just about you and why God doesn't show up for you and the way that you want him to show up for you. Your story is part of God's story. The book of Esther is how God rescued his people, the Jews, one of whom was Mordecai. So there's a much bigger story than Mordecai going on. And, and if we get stuck, if you get stuck, or if I get stuck that God, what are you doing for me? Forget the story. What are you doing for me? Then we miss out on, on this huge story. And sometimes it's the story gets affected because we're not showing up in our place. So this important layer of the story is it's not about him. It's about the Jews and what God will do to rescue his people, the Jews, to be faithful to his promise to them. Even though we've seen the letter, he's doing this for them, even though they're not where they're supposed to be, that you can find God even when you're not where you're supposed to be. So we notice this as we've gone through Esther. Esther is after the time period when all the Jews were allowed to go back to the land of Israel, and they were commanded by God to go back to the land of Israel. You only have Jews there because they decide, no, life's pretty good here. We're kind of used to this. I know it's not where we're supposed to be, but I'm going to stay here. He hasn't been there. Yeah, I know I'm not really supposed to be doing this, but it's, you know, I'm kind of getting used to it. Even when, you, even when you're not where you're supposed to be, you'll find God. He's going he's gonna to show up for them because his story is to rescue them. And then you step back and there's another layer in here that we live in the battle of kingdoms. We live in the, in the time of the battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. It's not yin-yang. And as a Christian, boy, I can exhort you, you should never have any yin-yang paraphernalia because that's a philosophy that says good and evil are, are balanced out. They're not. We have a savior who said, in the world you'll have tribulation, evil, but be a good cheer, I've overcome it. So if you want a yin-yang, your black ought to be about that big and your white ought to be about this big, you know, <laughs> because that's what we live in. But we live in this battle of kingdoms and you see it in the book of Esther. So here's how it plays out in the book of Esther. God has promised way, way back in the garden that because of man's sin, one day he would send a savior. And so Satan knows it's going to be one of the children of Eve. And then in Genesis chapter 12, he chooses Abraham. So now he knows it's going to be someone in the line of Abraham. One day, a child of Abraham, a Jew, will be born, and he will be the savior of the world. And so you watch through Bible history, you watch through modern history, the attempts to annihilate the Jewish people. You annihilate the Jews in the book of Esther, you have no Jesus. And so there was something much, much larger going on than even the Jewish nation. You know, God's thinking of us in saving the Jews. You know, in the book of Esther, you and I are part of the rescue plan so that there would be a savior born who you could come to at some point and realize, I need a, I need a savior. I've, I have messed up before God. I'm going to have to pay for that. He's a holy God. He's a just God, and he's got to pay. He's got to make people pay for their sins. 
But in mercy and grace and love, he's come up with this amazing plan with a substitute. That if you will just take, allow the substitute to pay for your sin, you won't have to. And then the substitute comes into your life and changes you. That's how good a deal is that. But he's got to keep that line going so that Jesus is born. And then you notice that the dark part of the Christmas story, as soon as he's born, they try to kill him. So that goes on. But hey, what God wants to do, that can't be stopped unless you stop it. Because if, you, if you're here with today without Jesus and you're still trying to figure out who he is and who he's going to be to you, then you can stop this plan that God has, has done for you anyway. But that's why we exist. We exist as a church to give people the opportunity to come know Jesus as their Savior. And, and then once you do that, then you're welcome to our recovery of trying to get past our past our past and walk in this future that Jesus has given to us. You know, that's the book of Esther. That's the book of, you know, that's the book of the Jewish people. That's the book of God's eternal plan that he will be, he's invisible at times, but always visible working out that story. So if you're here without Jesus, what a great day to, to receive him, to give your life to him. If you're here and you know you've been putting off taking the stand that God wants you to take or going in a direction you know God wants you to go, do that. He will show up in huge ways if you do that. If you've taken a stand and now the consequences are bigger than you thought, just hang in there because he'll show up for you. He's going to show up for you. So let me stand together. Well, let, me, let me pray over us. Yeah. Father, first, I just want to step back and thank you for our brothers and sisters around the world who are taking stands that, that they know, eyes open, are hugely dangerous and are going to just, just impact their whole life. And so I just want to pray for them. I want to pray just an, a wave of boldness, a wave of confidence and trust in you. I want to pray, Lord, that, that there would be such a deep sense of your presence, that they would experience what Paul talks about, the fellowship of sharing in your sufferings with you. So help them know stands. Here, like Marion was saying, our stand is so much easier than theirs. But they're real. They're still real to us, and we still, we still get... Uh, uh, conflicted emotionally about them and there's pressure we know comes from the evil kingdom not to take those stands so I pray you give us clarity on what stands to take I pray you give us wisdom on how to take those stands well I pray you'd honor those stands that are being taken those in the in the church family that have taken a stand in this last week and who are already wondering if that was the right one and waiting for you to show up and honor that I pray you just allow there to be the spirit of peace on them and in clarity. And those, those who are wrestling through, what do I do? What do I do? God, I pray that you would just tug so hard that they wouldn't be able to resist. They wouldn't be able to stay back. And God, those of us that we're not in the moment, we're in the five years between chapter two, chapter three, help us be ready to, to make that stand, Lord. Help us be growing in you so that we are ready for that stand. Help us be faithful to one another to, to kind of be that strength that's needed. So that's your will. You're going to do amazing things as we show up in those places. And, and then when you show up, that'll be phenomenal. So we want to be faithful to that. We want to experience you in it. So that's what we pray you do through us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.